Matt, Matt Weeb is my name, and I'm going to be talking to you about some things today. But before we get into that, I want to do something called the Territorial Acknowledgement, which is to acknowledge that we are on Treaty 1 territory. And this is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, the Cree, the Oji Cree, the Dakota, and the Dene peoples. And it's the homeland of the Métis Nation. And that's to say that there's a world here already going on before we come onto the scene. And there's real historical things. And we're here because of treaties, and we're all treaty people. And uh, many of us, especially people who look like me, are people who come from a group of people who've benefited from treaty and haven't really observed it and uh, played our part in it. And this is not... This is an uncomfortable truth about myself, and that kind of ties into um, some of what I want to talk about today. So I'm going to talk about today, uh, what does it mean when we say as Christians that we believe that Jesus died for our sins? Uh, and so that's something that makes us uncomfortable, and it also makes me uncomfortable because a lot of what we talk about when we talk about that, I think, is pretty misguided. Um, and a lot of the stuff I was raised to believe is pretty misguided. And this is all part of the series that I'm kind of doing, talking about things that are difficult and awkward and nobody wants to talk about. This is maybe one, that perhaps, that people haven't really ever even thought about. So that'll be so. This one will be interesting to see uh, see where we go with this. Um, so, so I'm gonna grab a book here and uh, read for you what, um, what is a very popularly said notion of why did Jesus die on the cross and what does it mean to say he died for our sins. And so this is, um, this is a pretty traditional account. And I just like the way uh, this theologian, James Allison, um, he's a Catholic theologian who is also openly gay, so that's pretty interesting. And he, um, he, he has a really interesting way to put this. And he's also British, and you'll see so you'll pick up on it sounds a little bit British. Um, so so here, here's a fairly uh, common, I don't want to say traditional because it's actually, it's actually not in some ways, but he says, um, God, so this is the account. I'm sure you've all heard it before. God created the universe, including humanity, and it was good. Then somehow or other humankind fell. This fall was a sin against God's infinite goodness and mercy and justice. So there was a problem. Humans could not, off our own bat, restore the order which had been disordered, let alone make up for having dishonored God's infinite goodness. No finite making up could make up for an offense with infinite ramifications. God would have been perfectly within his rights to have destroyed the whole of humanity, but God was merciful as well as being just, so he pondered what to do to sort out the mess. Could he simply have let the matter lie in his infinite mercy? Well, maybe he would have liked to, but he was beholden to his infinite justice as well. Only an infinite payment would do, something that humans couldn't come up with, but God could. And yet the payment had to be from the human side, or else it wouldn't be a real payment for the outrage to be appeased. So God came up with the idea of sending his son into the world as a human, so that his son could pay the price as a human, which, since he was also God, would be infinite, and thus would affect the necessary satisfaction. Thus the whole sorry saga could be brought to a convenient close. 
Those humans who agreed to cover over their sins by holding on to or being covered by the precious blood of the Savior whom the Father has sacrificed to himself would be saved from their sins and given the Holy Spirit by which they would be able to behave according to the original order of creation. In this way, when they died, they at least would be able to inherit heaven, which had been the original plan all along before the fall had mucked everything up. Mucked everything up. I like that. Um, so this, um, this is basically what many people teach and believe to be Christianity. This is how I was raised, uh, to believe that this was basically the story of God and salvation. Um, and so this is, this is what's known uh, as the penal substitutionary theory of atonement, if you want to use theological language. It basically means that God is this kind of judge, and we are wrongdoers, and he, he's out to get us. But he also likes us, so he's like, really? And so, so, so immediately, this is a very human-sounding God, because this is a God who is conflicted, right? Wants to love us, but needs to punish us. How do I hold these together? Oh, I'll do some divine child abuse, and somehow that'll make it right. Um... And so, so this, this is probably, if, if you've never really thought deeply about these things, me even saying it this way and like throwing around something like divine child abuse might be making you uncomfortable to even say things this way. Um, and that's, that's fine. So, so what, what, what I want to say firstly is that just, just to get one thing out of the way, that, that, there has never been an official doctrine in Christianity about what exactly happened with the cross. And so I'm going to be talking about an idea today and, and something that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but there's never been an official doctrine of what happened on the cross. The Christian confession is that he died for our sins. But what does that exactly mean? It meant something pretty different to the early Christians. This notion of penal substitutionary sin only came into effect uh, with a guy named Anselm in uh, 11th century Britain, and he was thinking through it very much in a way, um, according to his own time, it has a lot to do with the feudal system and lords and owing them the right kind of honor and, and this whole like system of honor. And we had dishonored God, and so God was out to get us because we should have honored him. So it was, it was, again, very human thinking about God, which is the only thing that we can ever do. Um, and so the history of Christianity and the history um, of uh, the nation of Israel and the early church that we have in the Bible is a history not so much of what God has done, but how humans have been evolving in our understanding of God. And this has you know, happened in the 2,000 years, again, since uh, the Bible. And something that has helped me in this journey and now I'll, I'll just put my cards on the table here. The reason that I'm interested in this question is because I'm interested in living justly and rightly and lovingly within the world today. I believe that that's at the core of what Jesus' message was and is. And, and yet I, I would always have this like, cognitive dissonance because there was there's all of these depictions of God as vengeful and wrathful and violent and wanting to punish us 
uh, throughout the Bible. And so this didn't really jive. It's God a God of love, God sometimes loving, God sometimes a vengeful, destroying kind of God. Like, what's going on here? Is there violence in God? Or what, what is happening here? And you, you know, if you've heard me talk before, that this is something of, of a bit of a preoccupation of mine. Um, and so, so I've talked before about how I don't believe there's any violence in God, but yet here you have this core thing about uh, the cross in Christianity and this notion that somehow, some way, incarnate God in flesh, right? Somehow fully God, fully man in the person of Jesus, somehow also the second person of the Trinity, the Son. Somehow this person in human history 2,000 years ago was executed by the Roman state on, on a torture device called the cross. Somehow this happened, and somehow this is what we confess as the thing that has saved us. And, and that's a very, very strange, strange thing. Um, and so, so what I'm going to share with you today is um, what, what, what I, um, some, some new things that I've been learning in and around this that, that are in some ways actually very conservative, in some ways very not, uh, about how we can maybe understand this and what kind of light this maybe sheds on us and our world. Um, and so something that I've been learning um, is, is something called mimetic theory. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of mimetic theory or a person named René Girard. He, uh, he was a French theorist who died recently. And he had a very simple intuition, insight into humanity. And he said um, that we desire according to the desire of another. And so it's... Uh, it's, it's a very basic insight that says, basically, we aren't actually atomic individuals with our own desires. Desire and what we want is something that we learn. Mimetic means, uh, mimetic is just the Greek word for imitate. Uh, we also get mimicry from it. Uh, it's the same kind of root. And so, so this is a basic intuition about who we are as humans that we desire according to the desire of another. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you a couple of, again, intuitive examples of this. Um, you put a toddler in a room with ten balls, and that toddler picks up one ball. And now you put another toddler in that room, and that toddler only wants the one ball that the other toddler already has, even though they're all identical, because the one who already has the ball and is beholding it and desiring it, that makes it desirable, right? Because they have it, I want it, right? This is something pretty basic about who we are. And nobody has figured this out better than the advertising industry, that this is a basic thing about humans, is that when we see something desirable, we see, we see it as desirable because we see that somebody else desires it. Right, So this is the way that things are sold to us generally in advertising. Things are sold to us, like the very early days of ads, they would just say, this is the thing, this is how it works. But very quickly on, instead, they started, they, they, they didn't really talk about the thing at all. They showed desirable people leading desirable lives, interacting with this desirable product that we should desire. Desire, desire, desire. Um, so, right, so nobody says, mmm, Coke is delicious. You see beautiful people doing beautiful things drinking Coke, right? 
And so this creates a desire within us for Coke. Or, and, and in many cases, this creates a desire for something that we never even imagined we would want. Like, nobody... And so this also preys in many ways on what we want, but also on our fears. Um, nobody ever thought about how white their teeth were until they started marketing us whitening strips for our teeth, as a friend said. So you create desire. And so... The thing about desire is that desire is very easily something that um, isn't necessarily fulfilled, right? Because, again, you see these two kids, and what do they do? They're immediately fighting over the toy, the ball, whatever. They're they're in competition. Um, In medic theory, this is called rivalry. Uh, And and we see this... um, we see this in basically any story that we ever tell, right? Any, any story, any narrative is always about conflict. And it's usual, and, and particularly one of the tropes of, say, romance is the love triangle. What is the love triangle other than friend one and friend two, right? They're, they're, they're friends, they're moving along, they're probably dudes most of the time. Right, and dude one like meets a woman, really loves her, talks to his friend. Oh man, she's just so great. I love her. She's this and this and this. And sure enough, friend two also falls in love with her, and now they're in competition with one another. The friends are now enemies because they're competing for for a, for a limited resource, which is the affection of this one woman. And the interesting thing in this is that the one woman she she actually disappears as 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 a thing. The story is now just about the rivalry. She's forgotten. Um, these, they're, they're just at war with each other, essentially. And so you get this kind of conflict. And so this is, this is the problem with imitation, is that it's actually the source of, of so many good things. This is how we learn everything, right? Like, think of if you ever had, um, if you ever had the, the, the luck to have, like, a teacher who really loved their subject, Right? that's a teacher that you could learn from, someone who really loved their subject. You could tell that most of your teachers were phoning it in. And so it was pretty hard to care about learning anything from them because they didn't care. But a teacher who loved their subject, that's somebody you can really learn from. And so, um, and so, so, so this, this imitation thing is, is a very good part about us, but it also gets us into trouble. It brings us into conflict. Um, I mean, so I, I talked about the love triangle there. Um, but you, you even see this playing out not just not just on a personal level. You see this playing out on a broad societal level. You see it like one of the most one of, one of the most ancient um, stories of all is the story about like the War of Troy and the Iliad, um, and that's essentially the same thing. It's a love triangle that turned into a war between two nations, kind of thing, right? Helen of Troy was taken off and. They sent their ships off to get her. They didn't even care about her until she got taken away, and now we've got to go fight a war over her to reclaim our honor or something. Um, and so, so the intuition here is that, um, is that in all of our societies and cultures that we start to compete for the same resources, and sometimes those resources aren't like literal, like food, clothing, shelter, mates, Sometimes these resources are just honor, right? Um, one of the one of the reasons I was uh, having having trouble in my previous church experience was that there was competition for the limited resource of who was gonna sit in front of a microphone and say words, right? 
Um, and so I came into conflict because there was supposedly empowerment, but only selectively, right? So this was not something that was going to be shared. Um, and so then we were in conflict with each other. Um, and so in, in, pr in primitive societies, the way that this conflict would maybe infect, say, a tribe, right? There would, there would be, and so, and, and this can infect a whole group. And you, you've maybe, you've maybe seen it when a group gets unsettled, maybe you've been a part of this. Immediately there's this instinct to not really notice that the, the unsettledness is in my heart. It's that somebody's to blame, right? Somebody is stirring this up. Somebody's to blame. This is somebody's fault. Somebody is producing this lack of peace in our midst, this um, thing. And this, um, and, and inevitably, um, and particularly in very early human history, um, quite frequently what would happen here is that there would be some, somebody would say, oh, you are the person who did this and we'll all gang up together and we'll stone you or we'll push you off a cliff or do something collectively together where we all kill you so nobody kills you. This is, according to this theory, the origin of human sacrifice. Um, uh, that, that somebody had to pay the price for the fact that we don't know how to handle this competition, this rivalry that's happening within our human culture, and somebody's got to take the blame. Somebody's got to pay the price for us. Pay the price. Somebody's got to be essentially... And so this is what's called scapegoating, is when a group doesn't know how to handle their rivalry and aggression and they take it out on somebody. And in coming together to take it out on somebody they find a moment of peace. They do find some peace because they were actually all unified precisely in coming against this person who they've held to be responsible. Now this person will, of course, have some kind of characteristic that will be easy to single them out. They're probably somebody who's weak and less powerful within the group. And now you start, and so, and then we can all draw together quite safely against this weak person, cast them out, kill them, um, and this is, according to mimetic theory, this is the source of actually all human culture, is all of us coming together in some way and casting something out so that we can be safe and good. Now, I mean, you see this playing out in our politics today, right? I mean, in, in the United States, particularly with um, hatred of Muslim people, Right? How do how do the Americans know that they're good because they're not Muslims, right? And so this this kind of thing is plays out time and time and time again. How a group unites against a common enemy, whether that enemy is kind of within the borders or without, and it's always conveniently somebody weak. Um, and so you see this playing out in in all kinds of levels of of, of power dynamics. This is um, you see this. You see this where, again, men take out their aggression on women, right? Because they're stronger versus weaker, so they take out their aggression on them. Um, and so you see this playing out time and time and time again. But the thing is that the people who are involved in this, and we're all involved in this, don't really know what we're doing when we're doing this. So, that, so that's kind of the whole point of it, 
is we don't even realize that we're ganging, ganging up on somebody in, in, until it's actually happened. Um, and so, so I was gonna, I was gonna read a, and so the, the Old Testament, uh, or the Hebrew Bible is littered with stories like this. It's actually quite remarkable because the way that these stories, um, come out, um, they're, they're really the basis for most of our myths that we have, most of our myths and stories about, about great heroes and gods. And there's always like some kind of, Right? There's some kind of hero who destroys the evil monster who is bringing calamity to our people, right? Cast them out and they had it coming and we, we get rid of bad violence with good violence. And these are, you know, these are the stories of, of, um, all of our comic book movies that are so prevalent again, right? The good hero using the good violence against the bad person who has the bad violence, right? And so this is, this is somehow deeply um, deeply embedded within our cultures that this is the way we make peace by making war by by doing violent things and so and so this notion that God in Christ was doing a similar thing that God was making peace by killing his own son by committing a kind of violence uh, to pay the price for our sins is actually very much structured in a similar way right Somebody had to pay the price so that we could have peace, right? Um, and and so so God decided to pay the price Himself and kill Himself, somewhat weirdly through the vagaries of God being one person but three people also at the same time in a Trinitarian confession. It gets all very strange. Um, God committed murder, suicide all at the same time, I guess. Um, now, I'm saying that because I don't believe that, and I believe that something actually very different is happening in this text. Because, um, yeah, so so just, just to give you a flavor of this, um, I'm just going to, of, of again, showing a, a myth, a story of where this um, is actually going on. <laughs> um, so this is this is a story from uh, from Joshua, and so what's going on in Joshua is basically the the nation of Israel has been delivered up out of slavery. They've been wandering in the desert for forty years, and they are now coming into uh, to claim a promised land, a land that um, actually already has a promised land that already has people living in it that they have to come in and kill. And uh, yeah, we wonder where. Our uh, <laughs> our uh, Canadian ancestors got the notion of uh, of a promised land from. Yep. And so here they are, and they're coming into uh, the land of Canaan, and uh, they've just they've just uh, defeated the city of Jericho has fallen. This is uh, Joshua chapter seven, and. In Joshua chapter seven, um, basically they've just they've just had this great victory. They're doing well. They're you know going to take over the land, and then you know they're they're at rest and they they're, they're celebrating their victory. Now, when they had their victory, of course, a normal thing to do when you uh, defeat somebody in a, in a battle is to steal them blind, to take everything they have. But in this uh, in this context, they were apparently commanded that they weren't supposed to do that. Um, 
And so basically what happens next is that um, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase here because it's actually pretty long and I'm, I'm already probably going to be speaking too long today. So basically the paraphrase is they, they go into their next battle. They thought it was going to be an easy foe. They didn't even, like, they, they thought it was, their scouts went out and said, yeah, there's hardly any of them there. We don't even need to send most of the army. Let's just, you know, relax and enjoy the fact that we just won this great victory. We'll just send a small force and they'll have no problem. Well, the small force goes, they have a big problem, lots of them die. And so now the army, you know, has gone from this high hive, we just really won, God was on our side, and now they're very demoralized. Now, um, I think it said, what does it say? It says, um, almost says like the water went out. Anyway, so they're demoralized. Um, they're very demoralized because they lost against this small, weak foe. Um, and so they're looking for somebody to blame. And so, so it said, oh, hey, remember when we said we couldn't steal anything from, uh, from Jericho? Well, guess what? Somebody obviously took something, and that's why God is angry with us. And again, God is angry with us, right? Not we are angry, not we are having trouble. God is, and so, and so basically they, they go on a witch hunt. They go on a witch hunt through their camp. And, and so what's, what's particularly interesting to see here is the way in which this happens, which is essentially they, they, they cast lots. Um, they, they say, okay, well, there's 12 tribes, so we'll bring in, we'll bring in the 12 tribes. And what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll have 12 stones and, you know, in, in, a, in a bucket, and whoever picks the black stone, it's your tribe is harboring the bad person. And so this is a way to make it seem that, that God is directing this luck so that it's not us who's about to commit murder here. Um, and so, so you can imagine, you can imagine the scene. It would be very, very um, tense what, where they're going through. And, you know, person from tribe A goes and they pick out the white stone. Oh, phew. And everyone would feel this sense of relief. Okay. It's not us. It's not our people. And another white stone. Okay. Phew. It's not us. Meanwhile, you know, there's people in that tribe who took stuff too. <laughs> right. They're just like, but phew, the, 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 the finger isn't going to fall on me. You did it. And then they, so finally they pick the tribe of Judah, and then they pick, they pick a clan. So then they break it down amongst the clans, and they do this over again. And then they go into a family, and they do this over again. And then finally they do it in the level of the family, and this guy named Achan gets the finger, and it's like, you did it. And he's like, yeah, I did. Or at least that's what the story says, right? The story says he confessed his sins, and then they go on and take him and his whole family and everything that he stole from Jericho, and they burn it all. Like, not just him, not just... And so this is, this is interesting how it actually reveals this whole um, mimetic structure, because him and everything he owned, which, of course, the, there was this notion that, you know, your own family is your, your possession, and everything he owned had to be burned precisely so that rivalry wouldn't increase, precisely so that you wouldn't get back into this rivalry thing. But in the meantime, we've all united. We all stoned this person and, and burned him and everything he had. So we all united. We all came together. We felt the sense of relief. Finally, we purged the evildoer from amongst our midst. Right. And so if you read this passage, it's very clear. The way it says it is that God commanded this, that this is what God said should happen. But of course, that is what the people who live afterwards are going to say. 
They're going to say God made us do it. And they're going to say that, you know, the victim was guilty, even though he probably wasn't. And so this is, this is the intuition that mimetic theory gives us. And so, the, so what's interesting is if you read any myth, the myth is always any myth. Like if you read uh, like Oedipus, the Iliad, like lots of Greek myths, um, the here is always told from the perspective of the heroes and the victors and the winners. All of these stories are told by the survivors. You're never, you're never being told the story from the perspective of the losers, of the, of the victim. And that's what's interesting about what starts to happen with the Gospels. Because quite clearly here in the Gospels, what, and what you see is that for the first time in history, you have a person who goes to his death willingly, innocently, and we know about it. And we tell his story. And we confess that he died for our sins. And we say that he went to his death blameless. But if you actually look now through the structure of the Gospels, you'll see that the same kind of thing that was happening to Achan, the, the Israelites were t- feeling tumultuous. They were at war with themselves. They were at war with Rome. They were, everything was topsy-turvy. And here comes this Jesus guy. And he's not respecting any of the like boundaries that we have, any of these religious rituals and rites. He's, he's hanging out with prostitutes. He's hanging out with tax collector collaborators. He's hanging out with like Samaritans and women. This guy, this guy is so unholy because he's disruptive to the way that our society is structured. Our society is structured to like minimize this violence with a kind of other violence by excluding people. And so, so when I say violence is like, and so, or I am saying like violence is baked into our societal structures. It's not always with like a literal murder, like in some of these stories. It's often with prohibitions. It's often with exclusions. It's often with the way that we make ourselves good by making them bad, right? And, and so again, these stories are generally told from the perspective of the good people, which are basically the powerful people, the people who win. But what you see here for the first time in Jesus, in, in the Gospels, is a, is a new kind of story. A story told for, that, that exposes the lie of this mechanism in the first place, that exposes the lie that, that the victim is guilty because the victim is innocent. And so what you see, what you see here, in, 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 uh, go to, uh, this is a little bit of the account in, uh, John chapter, uh, 11 first. And so that, so first when they're, and so again, this is the kind of structure that's happening. In John chapter 11, um, they're starting to plot. The, uh, the, the, the priests and the Pharisees are starting to plot to kill Jesus because he's disruptive. Right, not, not not that not that we have disruption within ourselves and within our society that is everything. No, he's the problem. Right, Jesus is the problem. Pardon me. The Pharisees, yeah, they were religious teachers, and they 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 knew everybody who was good and everybody who was bad. They had it all figured out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so they didn't like what he was doing because he was doing bad things according to them because he was hanging out with bad people. Um, and so, 
So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, what are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come down and destroy our holy place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, whose high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. So you see this structure happening again. Um, so he's, he's scapegoating Jesus in order to save the nation, to protect everything from spiraling out of control. And so then um, then again, in, uh, so, so just, just a little bit here again in, in John 18, so, so Jesus has been taken now finally, he's been betrayed by Judas, and so the soldiers, their officers, and the Jewish police arrested Jesus and bound him. First they took him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was better to have one person to die for the people. Then the high priest questioned Jesus and his disciples about his teaching. Jesus answered, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all of the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? And those who heard what I said to them, they know what I said. When he had said this, one of the police standing nearby struck Jesus on the face, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered, If I have spoken wrongly, testify to the wrong. But if I have spoken rightly, why do you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And, and it goes on like this. People, and so it, it becomes about honor instead of truth. Right? There, it's just, you're causing disruption not what you're teaching is false. And so, so this structure is happening again. And so, so what, what, what's happening then in the cross is that here, here is God coming in our midst to reveal to us who we are by letting us do to him what we always do to people, which is to build our sense of, of safety and, and, and normalcy on the back of excluding and marginalizing and sometimes even killing others. This is the way that we build our goodness together. This is the thing that we're doing. And he comes in our midst and he only, and, and, and he doesn't get involved in any of that. In fact, the things that we know most about him was that he spent most of his time hanging out with and talking to all of the people that you're supposed to avoid to keep society good. And so he does that and that scandalizes everyone. And so eventually they kill him for it because it's bringing up all these feelings and all of this, all of this tension. And, ah. and, and that's how we feel sometimes when, when, people don't kind of go along with the way that we think things should go. And, and so, but he didn't just come, and so, so this is what you would maybe then call the structure of what the Bible sometimes calls principalities and powers, the way that our, our societies and our cultures, our religions are structured on this kind of violence and exclusion. Um, this is... Um, this structure uh, is also what you would call perhaps then sin and death in the world, right? 
that this is, this is the way that we run things. But Jesus comes along with a totally different way of doing things. He comes along completely uninvolved. And, and again, coming back, to, coming back to the notion of imitation, we just fall into this. Like, it just happens to us. It's not actually something we choose to do. We are not actually, in many ways, individuals. We are a product of our environment. We are a product of the desires we've picked up from others. We are the product of the things we were taught to want. And we are the product of all of the rivalries of like the fact that I actually can't have everything that I want. And I don't know what to do with all of that. And, and so, but then Jesus comes into our midst to reveal this structure to us and to actually just let us lynch him, which is what happened. And not only that, but to show that he's completely unbothered by all of that. And that, that not only that, but he lets us do it to show us what it is that we're doing and so that we can receive his kind of life, his kind of love, the kind of love that would let us do that to him, the kind of love that then, where the scriptures then start to testify but that God is love, that the power of God is love, and that, that, that thus love was actually so strong that he didn't even stay dead for more than a couple of days. In fact, he came back from the grave. Now, I, I don't know if any of you have watched Game of Thrones, but there's this dude, Jon Snow, and he gets killed by his people, right? He gets betrayed. <laughs> he gets killed. They kill him because he's, oh, because he's hanging out with the people you shouldn't hang out with, which in this case is uh, the wildlings, the people from north of the wall. And he's consorting with them, and he's building a larger kind of community that includes the kind of people you're not supposed to include, and they can't handle it. And so they betray him, and they shiv him and kill him, and he dies. But in this story, there's this magic that um, he gets resurrected a couple days later. Now, just imagine being... Like if we, if we we imagine, and if you've watched this story, he does exactly what we would all do, which is he gets up and he's like, those motherfuckers, I'm going to kill them. And he does, because that's, because they killed me, right? And that's what we would all do. And so the love of God is the kind of love that is so strong and unbothered by all of the things that we're doing, so forgiving that he comes back from the grave as a forgiving victim. He comes back to life and says, okay, I let you kill me. And, and I'm just, I, I'm not even talking about it. I'm not even like going on like, yeah, you did that to me. Yeah, you did that to me. And I'm here. And yeah, and hey, there's even a wound here in my side. And I'm coming this whole thing is for you to show you what you're involved in and to show you that I've never been involved in that. I've never been a part of all of that. The angry God who demands a sacrifice has always been you. And I'm here in your midst as a forgiving victim. I'm showing you for the first time that the victim is innocent. I'm showing you for the first time that you've been run by this whole thing. And I'm here to forgive you and to give you a new kind of heart, a new kind of togetherness 
based not on excluding an in and out and holy and unholy, clean and unclean, Jew and Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free, as, as Paul says in one of his stirring components, all of these divisions that we use to try to contain our violence, we don't need them anymore because we have access to a different kind of life, the life that we see in Jesus, the life that would give itself and is actually always giving itself, always, I mean, quite soon after, quite soon after the resurrection of Jesus, the New Testament authors are saying, well, Jesus was quite clearly actually the driving engine of all creation. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. This love is so staggering and so reconfiguring that he's clearly behind it all because this is nothing that we would have ever expected this is nothing we could have ever predicted this has changed everything for us and so this is what one of the things that the cross that 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 jesus dying for our sins can mean it can mean that we don't have to be involved in that other way of being anymore we, we see it and can be exposed to it and actually see it for the first time precisely at the same time that we are being lovingly forgiven for it. That, that all, of this, all of these ways in which I, I secure my goodness by excluding others, hating others, how do I know I'm good because I'm not them, right? And, and for, for, for me, that strong temptation is that I'm not like those asshole evangelical white American Christians. That's my kryptonite. <laughs> That's the, those are the people I currently love to hate um, and, and, and take delight in not being. And so I'm finding, I'm finding the grace to be not merely involved in that kind of a, of, of a thing, but instead to be given a new, forgiving, loving form of life that Jesus came and embodied both in his life and his teachings, in the way he gave himself up for us, in the way he came back for us and he didn't kill us like we all would have done, (laughs) right? If he was in any way a judging, hateful, vengeful God, like it would have been like, guess what, I'm back (laughs) and you're all going to get it, right? That's That's how we would all act. And so he doesn't. And so that's interesting. Um, and so this, so this is, this is at the heart for me in, in what I'm growing to understand about the good news. The good news is that the angry God is dead because the angry God is us and, and that we get to participate in a new kind of being, a new kind of togetherness. And, and I mean, this has, this has actually had a profound impact on, you know, culture in the last 2,000 years because we don't think that, you know, we don't think that the victim is, is guilty as readily anymore. We, we, we have a suspicion when we see this kind of like scapegoating thing going on. We're like, yeah, I don't think that's working. I don't think that's true. I, don't, I think there's a, there's a level of deception happening here. And, and and so this this is and and 
like people people who talk about uh, this mimetic theory kind of stuff and the insights that it starts to unpack for us, they say, well, we could have only actually seen this after the Gospels have existed in our culture for as long as they have, because this is where we start to be able to see this. And we start to be able to receive something new, something different. And so, so this, this isn't... Um, this isn't like a like a life application sermon. <laughs> this is a this is a this is like a like a like a shift of a different way that you could look at this. And this isn't necessarily that useful on its own, but this is a, this is a framework to start thinking about how you can think about things differently, about how you can look at your own conflicting desires differently, about how you can start to, in some way, shape, or form. Instead of imitating all the conflicting desires that are swirling around us, you can start to live. Um, you can start to live in the mode that Jesus lived in, because this is what he said. He said, "I don't do anything on my own. I only do what I see the Father doing." And so this is him using the language of imitation. And he says, "No one has seen the Father except through me." And so the invitation, like like this, is like cheesy, like language, right? You know, what would Jesus do? Um, you know, just just do whatever it is that Jesus is doing. But, but there's actually a very deep truth here, that as we start to imitate Jesus, right? And you again, you hear, um, you know, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, you know, is, is, is some language that the, the writer of Hebrews uses. As we start to imitate this different mode of being, we, we, we are then set free from all of these entanglements that keep us in conflict with one another, and we can, we can start to name things honestly. We can, start to, we can start to say, oh yeah, I've been caught up in that. And we can say that precisely at the same time that we feel ourselves and sense ourselves being forgiven of it, that we are not being condemned by God. No, we're being released to not have to live that way anymore. So, this is me with my longest sermon yet, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop there and uh, see if anyone has any questions. Mm-hmm. Tommy, that was great, Matt. Once again, um, thank you. Why? Just a, a couple of questions here mm-hmm. uh, that I'm hoping that you could uh, shed some light on. Um, why is it so difficult to imitate Jesus Christ? Mm-hmm. Um, why do we have this appetite for rivalry? Mm-hmm. And uh, what is the appropriate way to address evil? Mm-hmm. Because it, it, it certainly does exist, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. three separate kind of related. Yep. Well, the reason it's hard is quite simply that we've had a lot of training in in doing otherwise. Right? We're we're raised and trained normal the normal world. That, that is around us, that, like the, our normal ways of being together, forming 
families and neighborhoods and cities and everything, all of these forms of togetherness are, again, run by in and out, right and wrong, all of this, these excluding things. So we, we pick this up because we're, we're imitators. So we pick this up as normal. And we've got a lot, generally a lot more examples of all of these normal everyday forms of violence, all the way from like literally like murdering, lynching people all the way to just like, you know, little exclusions, like, you know, little passive aggressive things. Like it's, it's, it's a whole range of violence. And so, and so that then seems to us to be just the way things are. You know, we, you, we use these kind, this kind of language. Well, it's just the way things are. Well, it's just the way the world works. Well, you can't, you can't be a pacifist. It's stupid, right? The world is might makes right. The world is run by the strong and the powerful, right? Um, and so this just seems perfectly like normal to us because this is, this is the, the thing. And so this is... And so it's, so it's hard to do. And it's, it's, doubly, um, it's doubly hard to do um, here in, in the West, uh, here in a place like Canada, because, um, because this stuff's a little, it's a little easier to see these uh, kind of power dynamics and the way that all this stuff like works if you're in the group of the oppressed instead of the oppressor. But I've been raised in the group of the oppressor of the kind of people like we are, we are the dominant power globally in the world. I'm a dominant power within my society because I'm a white and I'm a dude and I'm, and I'm heterosexual and, and even because I'm vaguely Christian. <laughs> um, and so, so this gives me all of these things that structure me against actually seeing any of this stuff. And so, so imitating Jesus is really hard to do because everything in the world around me is telling me something different, is telling me that I should run the world by like getting everything that I can get for myself, right? Um, and then doubly hard because most of the churches are kind of supporting that mission too. <laughs> like the, the, the large existing portion of North American Christianity is playing that same game for the most part and is locating violence in God to justify our own violence. So it's really hard to do. Um, this, is, this, is, this, is why, this is why the minute that um, Christianity started to become the, the religion of the Roman Empire, there was like this massive like exodus of all these Christians to the desert to go like live alone in monasteries so that they could pray because they, they, they could see the infection starting to happen as Christianity became powerful instead of, instead of the religion of the oppressed and the weak and the downtrodden. They, they knew they, they could see these dynamics a lot better. Um, on a secondary level, I think that we, it's, it's prayer, it's meditation um, in, in which we can learn to imitate Jesus and everything again, in our culture, is, is structured in a way to never give us a moment of peace or silence. Nobody likes to be alone with their thoughts ever. People fall asleep on the couch with the TV on, right? Um, and so, that, so, you, so you, you're just getting bombarded, you get this barrage. And so this is, this is but I, I think it's precisely this reason that there's been like a resurgence in things like 
contemplative prayer, mindfulness meditation, because people are saying this isn't working. This is, this is, there's, there's got to be something else here. And in my own experience, this is one of the ways in which I learn to, to, to imitate Jesus and to also to see what's going on inside of me. What's running? What are these stories and these voices that are running me? What are these things that I've just picked up along the way that are telling me who I am and what I should be doing? Um, so that's the first one. I forget. So evil? <laughs> evil, that's, 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 a, that's a whole other kettle of fish. And, and to be perfectly honest, I just don't know. It's, it's, it's very mysterious to me, too. I just don't know. Yeah. I was going to just maybe something to think about mm-hmm. because it, this trail off or whatever. Mm-hmm. A good friend of mine in the place where I work, in the culture that I work in and that I grew up in, yeah. um, he made a statement that I just I really love, but maybe it's my justice lens that loves it more than my care or critique lens. Yeah. And that is why do people have to hate others to love Jesus more? And for me, um, sticking up for the marginalized, for the uh, you know those types of, types of people when I can mm-hmm. and I want to, mm-hmm. it's really hard not to yeah. use those people as my fuel yeah. for kicking ass, yep. right? Like with mm-hmm. the justice lens in yep. front, yep. it's really hard. Yep. And that's a bit of a reverse, right? It's not, it's not there. That's the sacrificial person, right? Mm-hmm. That we're, so now I'm kind of flipping the thinking a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, something to think about. It's not a question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's the way we react, and we like flip over, and we do all these like dualistic kind of thing, right? one side and then you stop believing that and then you just flip over to the other side and you're against, right? And so then you're just doing the same thing, mm-hmm. right? It's a different form of violence. Yeah. And, and so you, you see this, right? You see this, you see this somewhat occurring in our, in our world today with like identity politics and people who are legitimately like oppressed, but because they're oppressed, that automatically makes them good. It doesn't. Because they're oppressed, it automatically makes the oppressors bad? No, it doesn't. No, we're all caught up in this mess. That's, that's the thing here. We're all caught up in this. Um, now, it's worse for people being actually oppressed. There's no question about it. But it's bad for all of us. It's, it's harmful and destructive to everyone. More so, of course, to some people. And I don't want to minimize that. But it's bad for the whole world. It's bad for all of us. 